from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Good morning. My name is Mark Mayette. I have the honor of serving on session here at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. Please join me for this morning's call to worship. The Lord has done marvelous things. Let us make the joyful noise to the Lord. The Lord has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. Praises to the God. Come, let us worship and praise God of love. Our first scripture lesson this morning comes from Psalm 98. This can be found on page 521 of your Pew Bibles. Listen now for the word of the Lord. O oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gotten him victory. The Lord has made known his victory. He has revealed his vindication in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the victory of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who live in it. Let the floods clap their hands, let the hills sing together for joy. At the presence of the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is the word of the Lord. Our second lesson is from John's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 9 through 17, found on page 103 in the New Testament in your pew Bibles. Hear again God's word. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. I have said these things to you, 
so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer, because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I am giving you these commands so that you may love one another. Friends, this again is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. O oh God, let us hear anew this old commandment. Let it settle deep in our hearts and change us so that we might live he leave here to live for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Imagine a time when succession of leadership is unknown. The values of a culture are being challenged and negotiated. The threat of violence is very real, and people face with no small amount of fear a future that feels uncertain. I could be describing this moment in our country as we're less than a month from a contentious and divisive election as we watch with horror news cycles that show us shootings and fear and vitriol every day, as debates about what we value as a nation play out in the media, as we hear expressions of all kinds of fear. I could also be describing the context of today's scripture from John's Gospel. The text is part of Jesus' conversations with his disciples as he prepared them for his own coming death, violent death, knowing that they faced an uncertain future, that they would face hatred and vitriol and violence, that the values he was calling them to teach and embody would be challenged. It's jarring to hear Jesus telling his disciples about complete joy when he is about to die. But that's exactly what he does. Jesus teaches his friends and us that in the face of fear and violence and uncertainty, our call is to pursue joy. What might come as an even bigger surprise to us is what it means to share in the joy of Jesus Christ in light of Jesus' suffering and death. It's quite a different thing from our own culture's notions about what it means to be happy, but more about that in just a minute. First, a quick note about terminology. Some people have drawn distinctions between happiness and joy. But for the writers of many of the texts in the Bible, the texts that talk about happiness and joy, the words were not so distinct. 
there are some 22 Hebrew words and 15 other Greek words that are translated interchangeably with English words like happiness and joy and gladness and blessedness. Those Hebrew and Greek words convey something profound, something lasting, something like a deep delight in faith, something that transcends a moment a gladness that is much more than just an emotion. That is the kind of happiness, the complete joy to which we are called. Now, a call to be joyful is not so strange to us. Ours is a culture obsessed with happiness. The pursuit of happiness was so important to the founders of this nation that they declared it an inalienable right. There is now a whole industry of happiness, countless books, fields of research, endless marketing, right? So much marketing of things that we are to buy that can make us feel happy. We're surrounded with messages that tell us that our happiness is important. So, we all want to be happy. We hear things telling us that happiness should come to us. I was in a doctor's office recently and I looked at the magazines that were fanned out there and they were all directed to parents and every one of them had a cover story aiming to teach parents how to make or maybe how to keep their kids happy. One was called Five Keys to Your Child's Happiness. Another one was Seven Secrets to Raising a Happy Child. And my favorite, for the parents who can't get it done in only five or seven steps, 100 Ways to Keep Little Kids Happy. I opened that last one just because what 100 ways did they come up with? As you would guess, it wasn't an article about a child's well-being. It wasn't about preparing our children to pursue a joyful life of faith. It was about creating enough distractions so that little kids won't cry. But all these articles for parents reinforce the idea that we're somehow going to create our own happiness, that we can create it for our kids and hand it over to them. This notion hit close to home for me recently as our six-year-old daughter Caroline and I were sharing what my mom always called a teachable moment. Did your moms use that phrase, teachable moment? I did not like that phrase when I was a kid, but I understand it so much better now. I don't even remember what she had done or not done that led to the conversation, but whatever it was, I had corrected her and she was feeling really crummy about that. And her lips started to quiver and big tears welled up in her eyes. And I remembered so vividly how upset I used to feel as a kid when I did or said something that needed correcting. So I pulled her into the reading chair in her room and we sat together. And I assured her that I was not upset with her. I asked her, what is my job as your mommy? And I really thought she would say something like, to teach me. And that we would pass through this moment and she wouldn't feel upset anymore because she would know that I was just being a good parent and preparing her for life in the world. But that's not what she said. 
When I said, what is my job? My sweet Caroline looked at me and said, to make sure I'm happy. Our teachable moment took on a new meaning then. And I've been thinking about this teaching from John's Gospel ever since. I've been hearing in my mind the words of our Lord saying, I've given you my commandments so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. I've been thinking about just what it means to have complete joy as a follower of Jesus Christ in a world that promotes a very different vision of happiness. Now, if I didn't know my own child's heart, her delight in the world, her kindness, and her generosity of spirit, I would say that maybe she's the most shrewd first grader around because she's recognized how great it would be if someone delivered happiness to us. Or I might say that she must surely have picked that up from school because the kids these days. But the truth is that she picked it up from everywhere. The notion is all around us. Listen to how we talk about our jobs and our relationships, our parenting, our leisure, how we name the priority of our lives. We say, we want to find someone who will make us happy. We want to find a job that will make us happy. More than anything, we just want to be happy. The dictionary reinforces this for us, this quest to feel good. Webster's defines happy as feeling pleasure and enjoyment because of your life, your situation, etc. That's what it says, life, comma, situation, etc. Defines joy as a feeling of great happiness or success in doing, finding, or getting something getting something. If we put all that together, it sure sounds like the priority of our lives is getting a situation that gives us a feeling of pleasure. Is that really the pursuit of our lives? A recent article in The Atlantic was titled, There's More to Life Than Being Happy. And it cited a study that some psychologists out of Stanford did with 400 Americans between age 18 and 78. These people were asked whether their lives were meaningful or happy. The study found that in general, the people who claimed to be leading a happy life were takers. They expected things to come to them, while those who felt they had found meaning were givers. The folks who did the study wrote that happiness without meaning characterizes a relatively shallow, self-absorbed, or even selfish life in which things go well, needs and desires are easily satisfied, and difficult and taxing entanglements are avoided. Happiness is about feeling good. The study also found that people who are happy tend to think that all of life is easy they're in good physical health, they have enough money to buy what they need and want. They define a happy life with the lack of stress or worry. Now, happiness and joy might have been of the same stuff, the same character for the writers of the Bible, but our Lord's call for us to share in joy is very different from a low-stress life of good health. 
Pursuing joy actually does not mean seeking our own comfort or expecting that life will be free from sorrow and grief, from illness and suffering, need and want, loneliness, loss, and failure. We should not mistake joy for the absence of challenge. And most importantly, we must not think that the deep joy of Jesus Christ is a matter of feeling good. No. Jesus says something very different about joy. Unlike the Webster's definition, the joy of Christ is not at all about how we feel. It's about what we do. It's not intuitive for us, particularly in this culture, to think about joy coming from obeying a command, right? I mean, when was the last time you said, I feel joyful today because I was really obedient? That's not intuitive for us, but Jesus is very specific about this. As he was preparing his own disciples for his death, getting ready to give his life so that we might have life, he gave one command, that they should love one another as they had been loved. He actually called them to move from being followers to being co-laborers with him, saying, I have chosen you. I've appointed you to go and bear fruit that will last. I've given you this command that you love one another as I have loved you, so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This should really shake us, friends. It should make us ask ourselves as individuals and as a community together, what are we pursuing with our lives? What? So far this fall, our worship has focused on renewing our faith and on choosing to serve God in a world that does not do so. Two weeks ago, we heard a call to take whatever steps we must to be open and present with all our brothers and sisters. Last week, Shelva Smith-Mather, mission co-worker in the South Sudan, called us to get ready, to be prepared to be part of the new thing God is doing, even when we feel ill-equipped, even when we find it hard to believe that God would want to use us in a broken world, even when answering God's call means embracing those who not only look different from us or come from a different background, but those who make us feel threatened and afraid, wolves and lambs, even those who've made us angry and who've hurt us. Every one of those messages calls us to take an honest and hard look at how we treat each other. And today's scripture gives us a very plain command to treat each other with the same love we have received in Jesus Christ. Now, it is hard to do that. Sarah Kate talked about it just now in the context of her relationship with her sister, which hopefully they've worked out by now. It's daunting to hear Jesus say that we've been chosen that we've been appointed to go and bear fruit. It's arresting to hear this call and realize that we're not supposed to be seeking our own happiness. And it's even harder to respond when we live in a culture that seduces us with the notion of our own good feeling at every turn. 
and as beautiful and as poetic as it sounds to love as we've been loved, it is hard because at the center of this exercise of love stands the cross. Friends, we have been loved by one who did not seek his own happiness. We have been loved by a Lord who didn't have money or status or a house to keep or a career to manage. We've been loved by one who chose to get close to people who were sick, who offended others by hanging out with the rejects, who washed dirty feet and hung out around the outskirts of town. We've been loved by a Lord who didn't battle or belittle others for power, but chose to give it up. We've been loved by one who laid down his own life for the very people who beat him and mocked him and hung him on a cross. We've been loved by one who calls us to make that love the joy of our lives. That hard call came to the disciples in an uncertain time, when they knew their leader was about to die, when they knew they would face hatred and violence, when they knew it was not going to feel good to go out and preach a message of radical love. The same call comes to us in a time when we see all around us just how unloving human beings are to each other. And not just unloving, we're bombarded with examples of cruel, appalling, shameful words and actions. Our news stories are prefaced with disclaimers warning us about the offensive nature of the language and the images that are about to be shown. Our daily diet of news should shock us and force us to ask whether human beings have any regard for each other at all. If we look for them, we see scenes of war and death, pictures of desperate refugees, funerals of shooting victims, all reminding us that the way we treat each other is a matter of life and death. If we look for them, we see our brothers and sisters unsheltered and exposed, being treated as less than human. If we look for them, we see children who can't get an education because their families are struggling to survive, and they're treated like they're invisible. Into that context comes our call to love. And friends, as daunting as that call might seem, as ill-equipped as we might feel, as distracted and busy as we may be, as much as we would prefer a stress-free life of feeling good, we can choose the hard, intentional, active joy our Lord wants us to know. Years ago, I served a church in South Africa, a beautiful, complicated place that, like our own city, has great wealth and desperate poverty. Almost every one of my days working in that place included an interaction with street children and with residents of a township. Township is a euphemism, really, because it's a shanty town where shelters are built literally from the trash of the neighboring town. I grew discouraged after a few months, and one morning I rode my bicycle to church in tears and said to my mentor, the pastor of the church, 
How do you do this? How do you keep doing ministry in the face of this constant and overwhelming need? I hope, as long as I live, I never forget his answer. He said, I try to love the person in front of me. Every interaction we have with another human being is an opportunity to love one another, one person at a time, need by need, from offering food to walking together in grief to sharing in fun. This isn't a miserable exercise. Loving the person in front of us in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, loving one another is by no means limited to this church or any church, but if you're feeling challenged today to pursue joy in a new way, receive this invitation to start here, and then to let joy become your pursuit everywhere you might go away from here, in all the spheres of your life. Welcome a person you don't know. Make it your goal to notice who's on the streets you walk and drive. Participate in conversations about how we can be a city where all are housed. Prepare your own children for a life of intentional love. We're going to keep working on it at our house. Choose to get close to someone whose path won't otherwise cross yours. Whether it's a child at Snapfinger Elementary or a refugee family who needs a friend in a strange new world, Build a relationship with a brother or sister in Christ through one of our mission partnerships. Ask each day whether that day was a chase after happiness or a day of love. Use your skills, use your voice to lead this church and to lead this city toward a culture that prizes human life. Give in ways that are thoughtful and intentional and even sacrificial. Wash feet. Hang out on the outskirts of town. Move toward those whom the world rejects. It requires nothing to speak to another person, to know another person, to love another person. Jesus says to us, Love one another as I have loved you. Living such a life brings us nothing less than complete joy. Amen. Friends, joyful music leads us sunward. Go from this place to pursue joy, living the command of our Lord Jesus Christ to love one another as we have been loved. And as we go, may we take comfort and find confidence in having the grace, love, and fellowship of God deep in our hearts, going with us always. Amen. Amen.